Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. A few months ago, I was walking down Newbury Street, and I overheard a conversation between a mother, her daughter, and her daughter's teenage friend. And the friend was very excited about a boy that she had just met and started dating. And so the mother and daughter began to pepper her with all kinds of questions. What's his name? Where did you meet him? What does he look like? What does he do? And then the mother asked a question which which stunned me. She said, and now the most important question, what does he drive? A car, after all is said and done, is a way to get from one place to another. But in our commerce-driven, product-oriented society, billions of dollars have been poured into establishing the car as being about something else. Marketers have encouraged us to give car what Buddhists refer to as story. So a car is now a public statement about how successful you are. The brand of tires you buy is about whether you love babies or not. Car is a statement about how you perform in the bedroom or your ability to attract others. A car is an extension of personal prestige and honor. Is there a downside to this game of pretend uh, that a car is something it's not in order to sell a few more of them? The answer to that question comes on the evening news when we learned that someone cut somebody off in traffic and was shot as a result. A few months ago in Toronto, while traveling at a high rate of speed, a man intentionally nudged another man's car into a concrete barrier, killing him instantly because the victim had dared to place his vehicle in front of the other during rush hour traffic. So while the constant pressure to sell more and more cars encourages some rather obvious misrepresentations of what a car might be for, what may not be so obvious is that a similar interference affects our relationship between people and the music that serves us. The intensely materialistic time in which we live, which tends to see everything as product, distorts the role of music in our life just as it distorts the role of cars. And many of these distortions are encouraged by people who have something they'd like to sell you. And sometimes it's not music. Let me mention a few of these really common ways that we misrepresent the role of music in our lives. First, Muzak, that highly processed background music of elevators, phone calls on hold, and department stores, consciously engineered to pump us up in the morning and calm us down at night, and most importantly, to spend more during the middle of the day. Is it the purpose of music to control and manipulate the behavior of other people? Is it a profit-generating vice? Is it something that runs in the background of our lives, subtly influencing us while we pay no conscious attention to it? No, no, and no. It can be used for those purposes, but that's not the true essence of music. We often find what we musicians do listed in a section of the newspaper called arts and entertainment. Are those related? Is the choice really, gee, tonight should I play a video game, go to a casino, or hear a Beethoven symphony? Are those, 
Are those somehow equivalent choices? As a musician, I have absolutely no interest whatsoever in entertaining you. But when I file my taxes, classical pianists file under the same IRS occupation code, 711510, as Elvis impersonators in a Las Vegas nightclub. We're entertainers. The IRS is confused about what I do. Competition, from American Idol to the Van Cliburn Piano Competition to screening 400 horns for one position in the San Diego Symphony Orchestra. Is it the essence of music to pit people against each other, to force combat, to identify a winner and a loser? Is music competitive by nature? Football is competitive by nature. If you take the competition out of football, it's hard to have any football left at the end of the game. Music is not competitive by nature. There is nothing competitive about music. In fact, we make really, really good music, the best music, in fact, when there is no competition whatsoever, when there's pure collaboration. Ego, elitism, glamour, and the desire for profit are all intensely competitive. And sometimes when people see these things associated with music, they assume that it must have something to do with the music itself. It doesn't. It has to do with ego, elitism, glamour, and the desire for profit. Not only is music non-competitive, it is anti-competitive. It actually causes people to come together. Time after time, we have seen that if you take people from countries that are at war with each other and plop individuals into an orchestra or into a chorus and get them to sing or play together, it becomes almost impossible for them to continue fighting with each other. So if the true nature of music is not these things, if it's not a material good, not a profit-generating device, not entertainment, and not competitive, what is the true nature of music and how does it work? The first people to really get this, in my opinion, and they got it thousands of years ago, were the ancient Greeks, who said that music was the opposite of astronomy. Astronomy is the ability to look out and understand relationships between visible, external, moving objects. We see the stars and planets, we understand their position, we figure out how they influence each other and the relationship to their patterns of movement, that's astronomy. Music, said the Greeks, is the internal version of that. Music is the ability to understand relationship between invisible, internal, moving objects. Music has a way of finding moving pieces inside of our hearts and souls and helping us figure out the condition and nature of things inside of us when we can't articulate them. It's especially powerful when we have things that we might not even be aware of. It's a powerful way to communicate with each other when we cannot speak. Let me give you some common examples of how this works in everyday life. How many of you have a song that you associate with a, a special person, either a current lover, a past lover, you have your special song. Okay, a few of you, many of you. Watch what happens the next time you hear this song. It's not that the song makes you remember the person or think about them, it's not that. What happens, test me on this and see if it isn't true, what happens the next time you hear that song is you feel the way you felt when you were with that person. Wherever your planets were, in that internal configuration when you were with that person, music has the power to capture that, and every time the music plays, your planets revert to that position. This might also be true for those of you who have a song where you hear it, you say, that's 1954, or that song is ninth grade. 
It's not because it reminds you of ninth grade, it's because you feel ninth grade. Check that out and see if it isn't true. An even simpler example of this is what happens every time we gather to sing happy birthday to someone. Think about an office gathering where you're singing happy birthday with about a dozen coworkers to an individual and think about the sum total of what is expressed to that person during the 30 seconds or so it takes to sing that song. Could you imagine lining up one by one or going around the circle and trying to come up with some words that would satisfactorily replace that song? It would be terribly awkward with someone you didn't know well. I just wanted to acknowledge the day that you were born as a symbolic appreciation of you and the uniqueness you bring to this company. Just sing. <laughs> Music communicates beautifully for us when we can't possibly find the words. In fact, it works perfectly when we are absolutely speechless. In September 11, 2001, I was living in Manhattan. And like many people, I had a very difficult time figuring out the meaning of what was happening that day. I did not intend to make music that day, at least not after 9.30 in the morning when it became clear what was happening. And being a piano player at that point in history left me feeling a little bit silly, for lack of a better word. There was an identity crisis going on because there were all these very important people, ambulances and fire trucks and military planes flying overhead. And I sort of thought, well, what does a piano player do in this situation? And yet, the first group activity I saw that day, once we started breathing again, which I remember being about five o'clock in the afternoon, was people gathered on street corners and sang. People started singing. People sang that night. If you watched the news that night, you saw singing. People in other cities even gathered on street corners and sang. People sang, We Shall Overcome, America the Beautiful, many other familiar songs. And the first public event, the first organized public event that I remember was the Brahms Requiem about a week later at Lincoln Center with the New York Philharmonic. Long before we even began to understand the medical, military, and financial impact of that day's events, long before the stock market reopened, intuitively, instinctively, we started making music. That was how we expressed to each other the relationship of the invisible pieces. That is how we communicate with each other when we're speechless, how we offer each other community when words fail us. In fact, the power of music is clearer in times of crisis than it is in times of ease, which explains why we don't fund it when we're doing well. In the moments of crisis, we focus on what's absolutely essential for survival. When French composer Olivier Messiaen was sent to a Nazi prison camp during World War II, he spent the time finishing the quartet he was working on. He premiered it in that prison. The first audience for that quartet was 4,000 prisoners and guards in that prison camp. The quartet, which is called the Quartet for the End of Time, is one of the most famous and successful pieces of chamber music ever written. There was no grant writer. There was no marketing department. There was no federal funding. There was no press release. The instruments were missing keys. It's one of the greatest pieces of music in the history of humankind. The urge to make music is so powerful, it's like those blades of grass you see that push themselves up through the cracks in the sidewalk. And you look at this blade of grass and say, how did that happen? The need to express life in music is such that we will do whatever it takes. It is more powerful than the urge to eat, more powerful than the urge to reproduce. It is as powerful as the urge to breathe. 
Some of you might know Samuel Barber's beautiful piece, Adagio for Strings. And some of you might not know that piece, but you might know the soundtrack for the Oliver Stone film, Platoon, the film about a Vietnam, the Vietnam War. It's the same piece. That's the Adagio for Strings. If you know that piece by either name, you know that it has the ability to crack your heart open like a walnut when you listen to it. It somehow has this ability to make you cry from an odd combination of sadness, joy, and beauty that really can't be described using words. Music, when we submit ourselves to it in this way, can slip beneath consciousness to get at what's really going on inside of us, this, the same way that a really good therapist does. There's a therapeutic process that I call spiritual chiropractor, where the music goes in, finds your invisible pieces, moves them around, and sends you out a little bit better lined up inside than when you came in. So a musician is more of a therapist than an entertainer. And in times of crisis, a musician is a lot like a paramedic. We're not interested in entertaining you. We're interested in keeping you alive. You may know that when the Titanic sank, there were musicians on the board. The ship had a band. And the response of the musicians, when it became clear that the ship was going down, was to assemble on the deck and play. And we know from survivors' accounts that the musicians played until they went underwater. They didn't do that because they thought it would be a good moment for entertainment. They did that because it was their way of staying fully engaged in life until the last moment. They were playing themselves out. Whatever unspeakable event, whether it's the joy from your daughter's wedding or the moment of your own death or any mountain or valley in between, this practice holds us in life and connects us to each other so that we can communicate wordlessly. I suppose by the nature of my job at the conservatory, I'm supposed to have a vested interest in promoting the music of Mozart and Brahms and Bernstein and that genre that we call classical or worse, serious music. But what I pray for each of you is that you find the music that works for you. And honestly, I don't care whether that's classical or rap or ska or Frank Sinatra or Ben Folds or Barry Manilow. I lied. I, if it's Barry Manilow, speak with me privately and we'll see what we can do. <laughs> Just teasing. Seriously, what matters more than the type of music that you like is that we submit ourselves to it, that we enter into a partnership with music where we recognize its potential as a therapeutic agent. And live music is much, much better for this than recorded music for the same reason that spending 50 minutes with a therapist is very different than listening to a 50-minute podcast on self-esteem. One is an interaction, the other, you're getting information. With live music, the specific energy that you bring as an audience member affects the performers in subtle but real ways, and you influence what is being created. In effect, you co-create the performance and music ends up being created with you in mind. The Nazi prison guards and prisoners of that camp co-created the quartet for the end of time in a mind-boggling and perhaps obscene mystery. That piece would not exist as it does now without their participation. You can listen to a recording of someone else's music, but it's not nearly good, not nearly as good as having a performance that was made just for you. So beyond finding your own music that brings you health, what I also hope and wish for all of you is that you will make music, 
which can really be as simple as singing happy birthday, really breathing into your belly, and really singing at the top of your lungs. It can be as simple as beating a drum in a community drum circle or clapping your hands. For those of you who can do more, do more. Sing in a chorus, play in an orchestra. Your internal pieces will be more right within yourself and your pieces will be more right with your neighbor. And finally, speaking of being right with your neighbor, let's go back to happy birthday for a minute. The next time you're in a position to participate in singing happy birthday to someone that you're not particularly fond of, or even someone you actively detest, try this. Take a breath in your belly and really sing with your whole heart. You will find that you cannot simultaneously sing happy birthday with your whole heart and hold on to the feelings of, I detest this person. If your mind drifts to the feelings, you will stop singing. You will run out of breath or your voice will falter. If, on the other hand, you focus your attention on singing, you will lose the ability to hold on to those feelings. Your internal planets line up in what I call the happy birthday constellation, which is the position of honoring and wishing another person well. Try it. I dare you. If you're able to simultaneously sing and hold a posture of dislike for somebody, let me know. I've been putting this challenge out for four years, and I have yet to get an email from anyone. Now, if singing happy birthday from one person to another can do that, then imagine what entire symphonies and choruses of people playing and singing their hearts out can do for the people of the earth. My prayer is that all of you will have music, that you will find a place for live music in your life, both the kind that you listen to and the kind that you make, that you will allow it to partner you spiritually, to facilitate you emotionally, to act as that chiropractic force that gets you into the right alignment with yourself and with other people. May all of us find that, and to the extent that we find that, may we share it with as many people as we can. May all people have music as a spiritual companion in their lives. May all people have right relationship with themselves and with others. May all people be at peace. Amen.